Hello and welcome to another episode of Cast It Into The Fire podcast. I'm Sarah. I'm Sherry. And we are back with another Redwall episode. We're between books on the main series. And we still have Lord of the Rings, you know, in in the plans for the future. Yeah, we have a lot of things in the works. This is um, a really short, takes only a few minutes to read, picture book for young kids, The Great Red Wall Feast, published in 1996 and illustrated by Christopher Dennis, or Dennis, how would you pronounce it? It could either be either way. It could be either way. And this book is... Uh, the illustrations are beautiful. The, the illustrations way. are beautiful, very detailed, a lot of nature, scenery, flowers, the inside of the abbey. Brian Jakes dedicated it, the book to his granddaughter. Jade Pascal Jakes. I believe this is the same granddaughter that... Um, partially inspired the character um, Marielle, who shows up in a later book, one of my mm-hmm. favorites. So yeah, this is a cute little story that I'd say it's good for younger kids. Uh, maybe you want to introduce them to Redwall, but maybe they're not ready for all the war and uh, scary stuff yet. It's just the abbey dwellers having a feast at their abbey, no uh And I think it'd be a great <laughs> inspiration for creating your own Redwall feast. Now I believe this takes place somewhere in between in the timeline between the first Redwall book and Cornflower's married. Cornflower's married, and Noisy Sam is no longer Silent Sam. Yeah. So this is after the first book, but I don't think that little uh, Madame Mayo has been born yet. Mm Mm-hmm. So that would place it in between the first book and the third. Um, not in the timeline of the second, which takes place generations before the first book, because that's how Redwall's uh, right. publication order is. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if Madame Mayo was born yet. He's not mentioned in here. Yeah. But he I could be I... one of the Dibbons. Yeah. So it, it starts out with a, a storyteller telling the Dibbons of the... Of the a feast that had happened in his memory. I think this is noisy sound. If you look in the back, you'll see who the storyteller is. The very back. The very back. The very very, like last. Yeah, as I thought, this is noisy Sam and Bungo the Mole. As uh, elders. (laughs) <laughs> oh, Bungo is just a dip in this and uh, Noisy Sam is, is front and center in this I don't know I'm guessing he's like about 13 in human uh, age in the they get away with a lot now. so all the mice they are planning a feast in secret the abbot doesn't know about this. He's sleeping. I'm not. I don't know why they expect him to sleep that long, but they probably know his habits pretty well. And they're um, planning all these foods they're gonna have at the feast with Fire Hugo, and going into you know great detail about how many different kinds of things they will have there. You know, baked goods and pies, and um, there's a beautiful illustration of the kitchen with Fire Hugo cooking with his uh, helpers. 
Now this is in poem form. The whole thing's in poem form. Yes. And, uh, do you want to read any of... I mean, like, obviously, for copyright reasons, I can't just read the book. Right. But here's an excerpt. Chop up the chestnuts, add some more apples, pass me those damsons and that meadow cream. His high, squeaky voice rises up to the rafters mid lovely aromas and wispy white steam. Bread and cheeses, nuts and salads, soups and pastries, pies and flans. Tarts and trifles, cakes and puddings, ovens, cauldrons, pots and pans, stews and sauces, jams and junkets, candied fruits and honey sweets, baking, basting, cooking, cooling, festive fare and banquet treats. So that gives you an idea of what the writing's like in this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they think that the abbot is looking kinda wakeful. And maybe like twitching a bit. So Matthias has the idea. Actually, no, Cornflower has the has the idea that if he wakes up, um, they should take the abbot for a stroll to the woodland to distract him. And he likes to do that anyhow. And when he wakes up, he says, "Oh, he hasn't been out." For a walk in a while, and he is questing for a Bobbiton weary nod, and they'd like he'd like him to accompany them. So the abbot leaves and brings Constance and Matthias and Formal. And so they all go questing for this Bobbiton weary nod, which they have no idea what that means. It sounds like gibberish. Well, they didn't either. And they were gone all day. All day. I mean, it it was already dark when they were returning. And, uh... And, uh, Noisy Sam, the squirrel sentry, um... Announces that they're all clear in time to get back to work. And, you know, like I said, you know, they're letting him be a sentry. I don't think he's still a dippin' anymore. Right. But he's also not a grown squirrel by by that point. Right. The hedgehogs have a poem about all the different drinks and barrels they have. And one thing in the poem, we actually looked this up. Dandelion and Old Burdock. See, when I was a kid, I just assumed it was some kind of alcohol. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're both American. And it turns out it is a type of non-alcoholic soda type beverage that um, England has. Yeah, you can you can buy it by the bottle in England. I'm still not entirely convinced that um, it would be non-alcoholic in Ambrose Spike's cellar. <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure how many things could even stay non-alcoholic for that long, like in a barrel. Right. But the actual beverage, it's a soda. It's made from the roots of burdock and... Is it dandelion root or dandelion leaves that you saw used in it? I didn't see what part of the dandelion was used. I'm assuming it's not easy to make from scratch. I have access to both plants. I have a jar of dried burdock root in the kitchen. Now, I, I'm seeing a recipe for dandelion gin May have moved it to my tea drawer. Now that's made from flowers.
apparently, even if you live in America, you can order it online, and I might someday do that just out of curiosity. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know it was a real thing until um, one of my Facebook friends who lives in England posted about drinking some. So anyway, uh, on to the kitchens where they think that Bungo the Mole Dibbon has fallen into a tater pie. And they're probing around in the pie looking for the baby mole. No success. And then the mole just walks up to them covered in... Uh, Damson and cream. Yeah. If you don't know what a damson is, it's a type of plum. It's another, I don't think I've tried it. It's more of an English thing, but it's a plum. He fell into a plum pie, and it, in his words, twere so delicious, or I didn't dare scream. Basil Staghair and Cornflower are out picking um, flowers to put on the tables, and there's a beautiful illustration with uh, those look like primroses, lilies, and um, harebell. I've actually seen harebell growing in the wild here. I think it's an introduced invasive. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And they're speculating about what this Bobbitson quest for a weary nod is. And they're hoping that the abbot doesn't get back late. You'd think they'd be more concerned about getting this done. Right. (laughs) And uh, the next page has a beautiful uh, drawing of the stained glass windows, which are depicting what looks like a scene of Martin the Warrior fighting with Sarmina on the edge of uh... I don't want to drop a spoiler for book two. This appears to be when Sarmina is fighting next to the water um, when Coder sinks. I'm not exactly sure why she's standing on a skull or whose skull it is, but it's there. We, by the way, have a cat here named Sarmina. Yes, we do. Who is somewhere. (laughs) Probably napping or prowling around. So in the great hall, which has these uh, stained glass windows we described. Oh, I think there's even Gomf right there in the stained glass. I I hope that's Gomf. His little hat. (laughs) They're setting out the tables and setting places in the great hall. And there's a crunching noise, and it is Bungo underneath the table eating flowers. Yeah, Bungo, uh, throughout the, the he is book, the resident troublemaker. Yeah, he's, he's constantly getting into trouble, usually food-related, because he just can't seem to stop his eating. Um, but that's kind of... He's a mole, Dippin'. He's a mole, but the other moles seem to be able to handle holding off a little bit. He's a growing mole. There's a beautiful uh, woodland illustration of the abbot and formal and Matthias off on their 
quest through the forest. And Constance is depicted on uh, all fours, and the others are on their hind legs. Mm-hmm. I see more um, badgers walking on all, all fours depicted in Red Wall than um, other creatures doing that. Yeah. And they're just like, we're not finding this Bobbiton quest weary not. Are they going, is it all for nothing? Uh, the abbot doesn't seem concerned and just says, you know, keep up, come along. And, uh, oh, this stroll's making him hungry, but he'll enjoy his, they'll enjoy supper all the more when they get back. Meanwhile, back at the abbey, a keg of dandelion fizz has somehow gotten away and is rolling everywhere, squirting the dandelion fizz. Oh, we talked about this, too. We were... I assume this is a fully fictional beverage. And I know that one of the later Redwall books has one of the hedgehogs inventing it by haphazardly throwing herbs in until it causes some kind of chemical reaction and yeah. it fizzes up. It appears to be their equivalent of soda. Mm-hmm. By the way, never give a carbonated beverage to a mouse. They Rodents do not have the apparatus to burp, so it is actually harmful to them. But in Redwall, I think all of this is uh, ignored. Right. Yes. And it is a uh, skipper of otters who... Uh, saves the day by catching the barrel and um, putting a bung into it with a mallet to uh, stop it making the mess. And uh, back in the forest, the abbot says... Back to the Abbey, my friends. This Bobbiton quest is halfway done at Redwall. The weary nod ends. Which is confusing to everybody. They don't know what he's talking about. Mm -hmm. But he seems to know what he's talking about. Right. A beautiful two full pages illustration of the questers in the meadow with grass and butterflies and trees in the distance. Another beautiful illustration of mice building a gigantic cake that's taller than anybody, probably including the badger if she were to be in that picture. And they're frosting it with icing roses. And apparently seashells, too, although I don't see anything on there that looks like a seashell. And they're making the... They're making the cake in Hugo's kitchen, and they're using fruit and uh, green sap milk. And look how tall that cake is. Yeah, that's what I was saying. It's huge. And Bungo has taken the nuts. They tell him to leave the nuts alone, but too late. So this cake is made fruit and uh, beech hazelnuts, a honey cream. Do you? Th- what do you think honey cream is? You think it's just like, like a cream cheese kind of frosting or something with some honey, honey in, it? in it? Because I've had cupcakes with something like that, and they were really good. Yeah. Either cream cheese or a whipped cream, like a heavy cream, heavy metal cream. Probably made out of their uh, green sap or whatever, because 
um, after the first book, they stop having any reference to dairy coming from another animal. And, um, I don't think sap is exactly realistic to make milk out of, but I've had some vegan milk from oat or almonds, and it's pretty good. I don't really know what would be good for making cream with. I've had, um, an oat milk, uh, creamer before that was just thicker. I don't know uh, how easy it would be to copy that without using the real thing, but mm -hmm. and Bungo's just running around, uh, getting into everything. But he's cute, so. <laughs> and next on to in the bell tower. I don't know why they're cooking in the bell tower, but I assume nobody wants to be around the fumes. Yeah. Otters are making extra hot root soup in a cauldron, and it says only an otter can make it, and it's a very old recipe, and only an otter would taste it, rather him than me. Okay, speak for yourself. I would absolutely eat that. I might have issue with too much horseradish. Alright, I admit, the horseradish is kind of a disappointment to me, because oh, I love the spiciest, craziest things, but I don't like the taste of horseradish. I don't like the taste of wasabi. I understand that, you know, it's called a hot root soup, so a hot root kind of implies that. Mm -hmm. And the recipe that has... is in here... It's not similar to the, the cookbook that you can... We talked about the Red Wall cookbook before, and it had a recipe for hot root soup that was basically a a chowder with shrimp and potato and leeks and a teensy little minuscule bit of either curry or chili powder. Like a quarter teaspoon in a whole thing, and I'm like, no, it needs more. Of course, that recipe was written by a person... Yeah. As opposed to an otter. Maybe the otters keep their version totally secret. One time I went totally hog wild on it and put like a a ton of chili powder into my bowl till the to chili powder apart from any heat it has or doesn't is kind of a overwhelming thing to put a bunch of in and I went crazy with that. And I served my own bowl. I put some Tabasco peppers, which are much, much hotter than Tabasco sauce. I put a scorpion pepper or something similar, and I'm like, there, that's a hot root soup. <laughs> I always imagine a hot root to be something in the cayenne-like category, reading yeah. it. Yeah. But I'm not sure that it actually is. Anyway, yes, they have a whole complicated, um, all the different water plants they're putting in. And some of these we looked up because we're American and these are... I had to be sure they were real. <laughs> I knew they were real, but I had to be sure they were edible. Now this has pond shrimp, leek and onions. Okay, we all know what that is. Wild garlic. Um, there's two plants called wild garlic, and one of them's a broadleaf, and one has got a narrow leaf. And I've, in America, I have only seen the narrow leaf type growing. Mm -hmm. I think Redwall is probably talking about the broadleafed one. Both of them would, are alliums, so both you know would be garlic. 
But the wild garlic I've cooked with, I don't think is the same one they're cooking with. Right. But it's pretty good. Horseradish, reed mace. Um, we end up looking that up. And it is apparently the same plant that Americans call cattail. Which I would absolutely love to try. The place I know of off the top of my head where it grows, it's both private property and heavily polluted, so I feel like I shouldn't be uh, trying to dig it there. But if there was a place I actually thought was okay... Um, the roots are edible. You gotta make sure that's actually what you're digging because wild iris grows in the same habitat and that's mildly toxic. And you don't want to mix that up if you're digging them too early in the year. And, you know, the flowers haven't shown up yet on the irises so you could see the difference. Right. I know the pollen is edible and has been used as like a flower substitute. Another plant they had in was starwort. Which is apparently the same as chickweed and it's kind of like a wet areas plant too even if it's not directly in the water. You were the one who looked up mare's tail. You want to talk about that? Um, I don't think that grows in America at all. It is native throughout most of North America and Central America. And I thought I knew my plants pretty well, but... Well... Okay... It says mare's tail is also called, well, horseweed. Um, Okay, it's considered a weed. Um, mare's tail is a flowering weed, a perennial, oh, no, mare's tail is an annual, there's something called horsetail, and that's a perennial. <clears throat> I don't think the horsetail is edible. But you were looking up mare's tail, the the other thing, and that was... It's an herbal remedy that dates back to... Oh, horsetail? Okay, I'm getting confused. I'm looking at both of them here. Which one is this? Mare's tail. Mare's tail. Oh, my goodness. You were looking at a page where someone was talking about how to cook it. Right. They keep jumping back and forth between being called horseweed and mare's tail like over and over again well if you the listener are thinking of cooking any plants uh, make sure you for sure know what it is and how to safely cook it before you do anything this uh, podcast is not sufficient for Identifying any plants. Yeah, I keep saying horse tail, or mare's tail, also known as horseweed. But then I read elsewhere that there are different plants. One is flowering, one is not flowering, one is resistant to, I guess, herbicides or something, and one isn't. Um, Show me the picture. Um... I think I'd recognize well, horse tail. This one article I'm looking at, but I think that 
they're different plants, but same name. The name gets interchanged by some people, which can be very confusing. Oh, this is not a plant that I'm at least familiar with by name, except for in Redwall. And Sarah has a background of working... Greenhouses, gardening... For, for years and years and years, so... Foraging edible plants almost my whole life. But that doesn't mean I know every plant out there. Yeah, here's the horsetail I know. Okay, and I was seeing that, yeah. And I don't think that's the one the otters are eating. Oh, you can... Get horsetail grass and capsules, traditional hair and nail support. No, you can I didn't buy know it about as that. A dried herb. When I was a kid, really, really young, Dad showed me some horsetail grass. And told me it was snake grass. And maybe it's called that too. I don't know. It was growing close to, like, I want to say close to the Beach Street area in Foxboro. Yeah. Well, anyway, the thing the otters are cooking with is called Mare's Tail. And. From my understanding, one plant that goes by that name is edible, but don't just go out and eat whatever plant is called that without doing a lot more research. Disclaimer, okay. And then the other plant you looked up, burried. What did you find about that? You saw a thing about how it was very closely related to cattail? It's like the closest relative to it. Um, okay, there's something called Soliva, S-O-L-I-V-A. Don't know it. Uh, it's a genus of uh, South American plants in the sunflower family. Burrweed is a common name for some of the species. Um, I don't think Red Wall would be growing any kind of South American no. uh, plant. Because it's also known as spurweed. <clears throat> you find it in lawns. You know, what these uh, have in common is they'd be found in or near water and they probably would be growing right in the Abbey Pond. Well, burrweed, though it's native to South America, has spread throughout most of the world. So, even if it didn't start there, it could have been there. That's what it looks like. Certainly doesn't look cattailish. It looks so much like parsley. Yeah, it does. And then the hot root pepper, which we've already talked about that some. There is no plant called hot root. It is fictional. 
realistically, it probably is something in the horseradish family. Although I want to imagine it as being something of the red pepperish sort. Hey, what you growling about, dog? Yep, Nim is having a nap. And she just woke up and she tends to wake up in a growly kind of... Hey, Nim. Yeah, go back to sleep. I know. So anyway, yes, the otters are brewing their famous uh, hot root soup in the bell tower. And I'm assuming it's so that all the spicy fumes don't affect anyone else. I know that uh, you like to be gone when I'm cooking certain things. I have to be gone because I choke. I like to make a certain... um, From my understanding, it's an... It's an anglicized one, but a certain uh, Indian food called fall, P-H-A-A-L, that is, um, some versions of it are insanely hot, and there's a portion of cooking it when you uh, have the hot peppers and the onions just cooking together on the pan, and it fumes most of the house, and you can't breathe. Yeah. I'm guessing, I think it's one of those things where, um, if it's made in a restaurant, the chef is likely wearing some kind of mask to protect. Yes, here's a picture of the shrimp and hot root soup with the recipe online on, uh, I guess it's on Tumblr. The Redwall Cookbook on Tumblr. Um, There's a few online versions. There's the one from the cookbook. There's one somebody came up with that's vegetarian. It doesn't have any shrimp in it. Mm-hmm. Well, this does have shrimp. Eight ounces of shrimp or prawns. Potatoes, vegetable stock. Leeks, onion, butter. All the recipes I've ever... Milk. The recipe I did, I used ocean shrimp. Yeah. Freshwater shrimp are so little, and I'm not even sure where you'd get... I mean, yes, I've seen them packaged as pet food, but I don't know how they're handled food safety-wise when it's, it's intended to be eaten by a turtle. Yeah. Well, I've seen in... in I haven't seen it, I haven't looked, I should say, in quite a while, but I used to find these little packages of shrimp, and they were the tiniest little, the size of your little fingernail shrimps, almost. Um, Probably krill. But uh, they were shrimp, and so you could get a little shrimp flavor for not very much money. I've only even seen a freshwater shrimp a few times, not counting the tropical ones for sale at the pet store. Are they related to crayfish at all? Distantly. Okay, because I've seen those, you know, live ones, you know, you're you're in a pond or something and suddenly you see a little crayfish out there trying to get you. I've seen the little fairy shrimp, which I think are protected. Or or something there of conservation concern. I don't. Is that what Joe had in Yeah, oh. I don't know if they're truly protected or not, but they're related to the sea monkey brine shrimp. Oh, okay. And I've also seen a little shrimp of a different kind, and um, if you believe me, it was sitting on a frog's head. Wow. So, like there was the frog like in a stream with its head out of the water, and there was the shrimp on its head. Just sitting there. And a little odd thing since Sarah mentioned sea monkeys is uh, I used to know uh, a guy whose father was the guy who came up with the whole sea monkey thing. And 
I mean, he didn't invent the creature, but he invented marketing them. Huh. Yeah. Well, he did in come up with some kind of process for like drawing them out and then reproduction, I think. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a very complicated story that one is. But I knew the guy's son way back in the seventies. Now I'm dating myself. <laughs> now on past the hot root soup. They're still waiting for the abbot to get back, and the Dibbons are all going to be bathed. Dibbons uh, famously hate being bathed. They're like, no, I'm going to die. And, um, Bungo says he'll promise he'll get barthed tomorrow if they'll let him go. But as soon as he's in the water... Um, he's splashing and, uh, pretending he's a pirate and, uh, getting soap all over. Giant mess. Anything involving Bungo is giant mess. And while this is going on, all the food's being gotten out of the kitchen and put up in the great hall. And it's getting dark outside. And finally the abbot is starting to head back again. And he's sorry he uh, got his friends to worry with the quest that they're doing. The stars are out. They see Red Wall in the distance, and Noisy Sam sees them and announces them. And everyone's welcomed inside, and the feast is ready. They've got all these colored lanterns up in the Great Hall, and there's a picture of that. And I assume these are the kind that are made from paper? They look like it? And the abbot is like, wow, is this all for me? And Bungo tells a fib that, oh, he did it all himself, except for he got some help with the cakes. Bungo is full of it. So they all sit down and the abbot does the red wall grace, which goes, Seasons of plenty, days of peace, in red wall may these never cease. Good comradeship, long life and health, our abbey's precious wealth, from winter's white to summer's gold, from spring to autumn we uphold these bounties mother nature brings respect her earth and living things I like uh, that uh, this is not the only time that there is a grace there's been graces at a few feasts in the books and in my opinion I think that they're trying to have that Brian Jakes was trying to have Redwall believe in something greater without getting specific and bringing in uh, Real-world religious references, although I will say Mother Nature is capitalized. And everyone digs in and eats a lot of food, and they did a toast, and... Which mall is this? One of the moles is um, doing a magic show. Hmm. I I don't know which mole. They just say magical mole. I am assuming this is all sleight of hand because magic only sort of dubiously exists in this universe at all. Yeah. Oh, and there's an illustration of Bungo eating a piece of cake that's almost as big as he is. 
Of course. Of course. And he got to have the very first slice of cake. Which he wanted. Yes. And there's an illustration of they're all, um, they're all dancing and playing little instruments. It's all really cute. And the feast isn't done until midnight. And there are still those that are still there at that point. Uh, but uh, the abbot... Uh, he is, fell asleep. Fell asleep. And guess who's on his knee? <laughs> it is Bongo. Bongo's on his knee sleeping as well. Now one thing really interesting about this book is the pages are made to look like they're parchment. They're, yeah, they're sort of... That sort of tannish parchment look. I mean, they're real pages with, you know, nice crisp cut corners, but it still has that parchmenty look. Now, um, as we're nearing the end of the book, uh, there is a, a spoiler. spoiler. Yes, a spoiler. So, if you don't want to know what this Bobbiton quest for a weary nod meant, um, now would be a time to mute it for a few minutes or um, stop the podcast. But, um, this is your warning. But the book does have it at the end. Um, explains the whole thing. Um, well, it is discovered because while the abbot is sleeping at the table... He has a scroll that falls out of his sleeve. And, uh, and um, basically, Bobbiton Quest for a Weary Nod was a word scrambler puzzle. And um, you could you can see where he's charted out what word what letter goes where. But Bobbiton Quest unscrabbles to Abbot's Banquet. And Weary Nod unscrambles to Ready Now. So it is Abbott's Banquet Ready Now. So even though they were trying to keep it a big surprise, obviously the Abbott... He knew and was playing along. Yep. And it's a pretty classic, you know, red wall word puzzle. And wasn't it Cornflower who was reading the... um, one One of the red wallers had picked up the scroll and was reading it to herself. Yeah, that was Cornflower. Okay, yeah. And she just broke into laughter over it. Yeah, they thought that the abbot was uh, getting maybe kind of old and silly. And I maybe know even he's... forgetting that he's an abbot. I know he's, he's totally sharp. He was on to them all along. And you know, as I said, these uh, word puzzles are pretty you know, classic in Redwall. A lot of the books have maybe a f- more involved one than this, but it is very much a Brian Jakesism. And then at the end of the story, these uh, two uh, elders that are telling it to the Dibbons are revealed to be Bungo and... Sam and says, Oh, maybe I'll read you another one. And so it's obviously from some time in the past this occurred because Bungo is mischievous Dibbon in there, and then uh, he's an elder. And I still think that by the time of um, Madame Mayo, the book, mm-hmm. um, Noisy Sam is maybe like in his young teens, yeah. in like people years. Yeah. Or maybe, I mean, squirrel years, whichever. He's the equivalent of like a 13, 14 year old boy in that. Mm-hmm. So, this... Um, 
these elders telling a story, this must be taking place after Madame Mayo. Because he wasn't that old yet. Yeah. And it... And it ends. Goodbye, my friends. Come back sometime. Maybe I'll read you another rhyme. Our names and address, should you wish to call. Bungo and Sam, the Abbey, Red Wall. So it's, again, classic Brian Jakes sort of inviting the reader to come back. Yeah. So there you go. It's a really cute story. It doesn't take long to read. The only reason it took long for us is we went on this tangent about plants. Right. Um, now... Did he write any other younger children type in the same kind of idea? He also did um, the Redwall Winter's Tale, oh, okay. which I was planning that someday I would do that as a Christmas special. Oh, that sounds good. And he also did the Urso Brunov books, um, two of those, which are not part of Redwall. They're about a uh, very minuscule bear. Yeah, that's great. If you want to, like, um, get, you know, you've got little kids, want to get them into reading Brian Jakes, but, you know, maybe some of the content in the main series is a little heavy for them at that age, these are perfect. And maybe getting them into trying different foods, too. It's, yeah. Um, so this is not... Um, it It is not a cookbook in the sense of actually having followable recipes, um, we recommend the cookbook, too. So, if you have get the Redwell cookbook, that would be a good companion if you want to, you know... So, this came out when I was six years old, and I didn't know it existed. I would have liked that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I read this first when I was about ten, because I hadn't heard of Redwall before, and I read the first Redwall book, and I read this before getting into the rest of the series. Um, certainly could enjoy it, um, older. I mean, it's a cute story. Uh. Now, this is not something we've done before, we've covered before, but we have used this book before. Um, at some point I would like to, uh, do a podcast on the Thunder Cake book. Well, we could. It's not by Brian Jakes. It's not by Brian Jakes. It's about a similar reading level with um, The Great Red Wall Feast, but it is... It does include a recipe, and it's basically... About a girl and her grandmother. And basically getting over the fear of a storm. So... Anyhow, just a little plug. For and another. one of the best uh, chocolate cake recipes I know included in the end. That's right. Butter yeah. cake is a chocolate cake. Thank you for listening to Cast Into the Fire podcast, and have a great day. Bye.